Here's Your Red Flag is intended for mature audiences only. Many, if not most, of our episodes will include topics such as psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, and detailed narcissistic and toxic behaviors. We are not professional therapists. If you are in need of professional help, please contact the appropriate authorities. Some names have been changed for anonymity purposes. The opinions expressed by the guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lisa or myself. You can find additional information about this podcast in the show notes, as well as on our website, heresyourredflag.com. And we are also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I feel well to the mirror. Well, there was nothing that I seen. You so Lisa, <laughs> our Hi, Tony. First, this is our first podcast together. We are going to work toward helping our audience feel that their situation with toxic people is understood and you have graciously decided to convey what you've been going through, especially the last few years. And we were, we started this podcast and realized we should have been recording that conversation because so much of our healing has been us just having these conversations and processing. For sure. Um, so, you know, we've kind of been talking about doing a podcast for, I don't know, months. And um, then when we finally set a date, you know, today to, to record, I, oh boy, it was just, I didn't have a stomach ache. You know, that wasn't, a, it's, I don't have any red flags about this, but just have a really heavy heart and wanting to be careful with uh, talking about people in my life and not wanting to disparage anyone and keeping the purpose of our podcast in mind, which is to really help people to know they're not alone in a toxic relationship and also to emphasize just over and over that that you have the power to learn and to change how you go about being in relationships with people and you don't have to continue relationships with people who continually hurt you mm-hmm. even if they're family i think what my story will reveal is just how over time being in relationships with toxic people strips us of our power. And at the same time, once we see that the healing can begin, but I want to say that seeing that we can't see it alone. And I know in my most recent relationship that we'll probably talk about in a couple of episodes, I felt it. I felt that something was wrong. I can go back in time to early dating and see all the red flags now, but at the time, it's just a slow stripping away. Um, Someone said once that it's just death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm. And so that's why I want to tell my story to help listeners understand that if you're in a toxic relationship, you're probably in it because of something in your upbringing. Mm. And I'm a firm believer in the family systems theory that how we're raised, it's both nature and nurture. 
we're born with a personality, but boy, who we interact with in our formative years really has an impact on who we become. Um, But who we become is not set in stone and we can always change that. So that's kind of a little bit of disclaimer and um, what I hope my story will be helpful for people to, uh, to hear. So again, it's through um, only because really of my faith and the unconditional love of you, my best friend. And, um, I'm already crying. Um, (laughs) (laughs) my kids, um, I see a wonderful counselor. And so it's all of that, um, combination that just really helped a healing journey and it's not over, you know, there's just a lot of work to do, but there's, um, I'm a long way from where I was a couple of years ago. So I'm very thankful for that. Very much so. And, you know, just being able to process together and knowing we're not alone, just hitting on that chord again is so important. And that's what, you know, some of these podcasts and books and uh, people that we listen to on YouTube really help us see, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one that's experienced this. And this isn't some enigma or something I can't figure out or, you know, something about myself that I'm flawed. It is just amazing to see the big body of research and information that's out there. But additionally, I think it's been wonderful having our our friendship and the ability to just even be able to text each other. Some like, is this something, is this anything, this behavior that I just experienced from this person and, and just getting that validation, I think has been just vital for both of us and trying to will not only heal from the wounds that maybe we've garnered from these relationships, you know, but just definitely learning how to actually, you got to live in the world with these people Mm -hmm. and figure out how to live in this world where we have our mental health and we're not suffering constantly. And, you know, just in a constant state of discombobulation with these people, Mm -hmm. you know, it isn't their world and it isn't just about them. We're all allowed to be in this world living healthily. Is that a word? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't stress enough how you do need a person to, Mm. to navigate this with. You can't, you cannot do it alone. And so many, you know, if there's a common trait among um, toxic people, narcissists, if I'm going to say the N word, Mm -hmm. um, is it, they do isolate you and they do want you alone. And I, I think it's very interesting that, you know, I'll start with my childhood in a minute, but uh, it's very interesting, isn't it? That I'm an only child. Mm. And so I've been alone. Um, oh, that's so interesting. A yeah. lot of my life. And so for, to be in relationships with people who have isolated me from others, that was a very comfortable place for me to be because I've been alone. You were conditioned. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Just by, just by birth. Right. Um, not by any ill intent from initially from people, but mm. just born into this world as an only child and very comfortable just being in my own thoughts, but you can't, if you're listening to this and trying to understand and even free yourself from toxic relationships, or even just people who are just mean people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you just can't do it alone. You've got to have someone to, to run past, uh, run things past. So I agree yeah. 
Yeah. So as I started uh, kind of doing some, an outline and some talking points, you know, initially I thought, all right, this is going to be about my mom and my dad, and this is just going to be so unpleasant. And it kind of was <laughs> unpleasant, but as it unfolded, we may, you know, talk, get into my mother at some point, but as it unfolded, it was just so apparent to me the direction maybe my story should take. Is this relationship um, that I had early on, you know, with my, my, my dad and stepdad. And so we'll focus on that to start with. So I am an only child. I was raised in a small farming and ranching community. My stepdad was definitely a narcissist and my father too, probably different kinds, but narcissist nonetheless. So my mom and stepdad married when I was probably three or four years old. My stepdad was verbally abusive toward my mom, a lot of name calling. And um, he would often, often, often say to me, children should be seen and not heard. Mm-hmm. And my mom and stepdad would, they were part of a, a supper club, a dinner club with these other couples. And as an only child, I guess they didn't want to get a babysitter or didn't have one. I don't know. Um, but if it was their turn to host the dinner party, well, all this elaborate food would be made and I was allowed to make a, make a plate, but go to my room. And I was not, not to be around the adults. And the same, same is true. If, if another couple was hosting, I could make a plate and then they would find a place off in someone's room for me to be and 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 not come around that was that was very very clear any chance he got my stepdad would tell me that um, my opinion didn't matter from something as small as where do you want to eat tonight on a Friday night or uh, where should we go on vacation your opinion doesn't matter and so yeah um the saving grace I think for me was uh, being sent away to my grandparents both sets they, they lived near each other um, during the summers. And, you know, at the time as a child, I never felt like I was being shipped off. Uh, I was really oblivious to that. I was just really excited to be around my grandparents. But I think it's an important thing to notice that I was naive and I was oblivious. And even as adults, we are naive and oblivious because this slow chipping away of our power, slow, slowly chipping away of our, of our identity by these um, toxic people is a very slow process. And so anyway, my grandparents, I would spend um, a, a few weeks with them each summer and they were just amazing. Um, they're all in heaven now, but they demonstrated unconditional love. They had They took a great interest in my life. They were encouraging and engaging. We played games together. They took me places with them. They didn't make me stay in my bedroom. Uh, They wanted me around. They introduced me to their friends. And um, it was just amazing. So those were some really happy, happy memories that I have uh, with my grandparents. So in uh, elementary school, my stepbrother uh, moved in with us when I was in elementary and he was um, several years older. I guess he moved in with us when he started high school. And there was always a lot of conflict between 
him and my parents. And they were always mad at him. He was always in trouble, grounded, had his truck taken away, just always in trouble. I, I'm sure he did kind of push the envelope a little bit, you know, with curfew, but typical teenage things, but it just always seemed to be the end of the world. And boy, did I learn to just stay out of the picture, stay quiet, do what I'm told. And I would, you know, be safe. You know, something about my stepdad, he wasn't always overtly cruel. He did cruel things kind of on the sly. And and one of those things that I don't have proof of, but I think it helps paint the picture of the kind of man he was um, at the core was my, my stepbrother had a dog. And after, I guess, a rebellious incident, the dog went missing. And I just, you know, really suspect that my, my stepfather had something to do with that. And um, my stepbrother recently passed away. Um, and I, I wish that we had more time to really process that. But I think he really believes that his dad did something to the dog as well. But I think that just goes to show we have different, you know, there's a range of people in, in our lives and we can have some that are just occasionally, you know, like us, we get in bad moods or we don't feel good or something. We kind of snap at someone and then we go back and apologize and it's just part of human nature. But then there's the other end of the spectrum. That's just this underlying cruelty. And, um, in that cruelty is really out of a, a need that they have for power and control. And I believe that my stepfather causing the dog to go missing was in an effort to get my stepbrother to comply with whatever uh, rule that he had set in place. So uh, a few other things that I witnessed during my elementary years, I just will never forget one time my mom and stepdad were having an argument in the kitchen and we had this long island and um, he was sitting at one end and she was standing at the other and he just stood up and he just slid his full cup of hot coffee all the way down the island to toward my mother. And she was standing right in front of this oven that was in the, in the wall. And that mug hit the oven, broke, of course, hot coffee goes everywhere. And I just remember watching her clean that up, just cry and clean it up, cry and clean it up. And she didn't say a word back to him. Um, she just cried and cleaned that up. And um, that's just a, a memory that will be forever in my, in my mind. My, my stepdad was very inappropriate with me. And I, I won't go into any more than that. But uh, again, power and control. When my mother wasn't around, I just remembered that this this morning when I was kind of going over my outline, uh, when she wasn't around, which wasn't often, but if she wasn't around, there were a couple of times where I caught him watching porn. And that, I don't know why that came to memory this morning, but again, just another layer. Who he was, um, he really couldn't, uh, didn't want to be bothered with me. Uh, he treated me hot and cold. At one point, you know, I was his daughter. He would claim me as his daughter and want me to call him dad. And I never did. And the other just, you know, very angry and dismissive. So I just learned to stay out of his way to uh, comply with what he asked of me. And 
not to ruffle any feathers. So definitely, definitely from early on, learning to walk on eggshells was what I was accustomed to. In his defense toward the end of his life, he he did become warmer. Yeah. Um, so I guess moving on to my biological father, my parents divorced when I was about two. Uh, so I never lived with him past that point. From the outside, he did all the right things. People in the in the town where he lives probably hold him in very high regard. He uh, gives monetarily to charities. He, I don't know if he still does, but uh, used to have photos of me all over his office. He talked a lot about me to other people in his life, bragged about me, in fact. Um, he took me on lots of trips, me and my kids, bought me my first car. When I was growing up, he called me twice a week religiously on Sundays and Wednesdays. And any time I would run into people, you know, with him, he'd say, oh, your dad is, you know, just so proud and just gush, gush. <laughs> but in person, um, boy, just the two of us or just me and my kids with him, just the most negative, complaining, dismissive, absolutely uninterested person to be around. He um, made very little eye contact with me ever. If I ever expressed to him something that went wrong in my life, whether it would be, I don't know, a fender bender or a lower grade that I wanted on an assignment or just buying the wrong size of clothes, he would always answer with, why would you do that? And it was always that tone. Why would you do that? You know? And then of course, why would you do that would be followed by the silent treatment. And so, you know, my mom and stepdad, I grew accustomed to walking on eggshells, staying out of the way and complying. And then with my dad added another layer, uh, which was the silent treatment for sure. And I'll probably touch on that in a little, you know, a little bit more. But with my dad, I, this is where I learned to be that, that little puppy, you know, um, jumping up on your leg, just, just vying for attention. And my early, earliest memory of that is going on a trip to Mount St. Helens. I was 12 years old and my dad suffers with migraines and he ended up getting a migraine while we're at Ma Mount St. Helens. And on the way down, another family member drove the car and my dad sat in the passenger seat and I sat in the middle. That's back when we could do that. I sat in the middle and I remember all the way down that mountain, shielding his eyes from the sun with whatever I could find, the sun visor or paper or a towel, because bright light um, with a migraine is really painful. And I remember doing that. And any other time that he would have a migraine, I would always make sure that he, um, the room was dark enough, cold enough. He had water, aspirin, whatever, and just really longed to take care of him. And, you know, we can take care of people, but it only really works if they can receive it. And he could never receive it. He was dismissive. He would ignore me while I was taking care of him. And so that would just make me want to do more the next time. And so that's that sort of tap dancing puppy on the leg metaphor of what, what other tricks can I do to even just get a thank you or some appreciation. And I wasn't doing it for 
the fame and glory. I was really doing it out of love in my heart for him and wanting to make him feel better. But again, it just was not ever reciprocal. So as I said earlier, you know, as I got older, if I did anything that he disagreed with, which was impossible to ever know because he was a terrible communicator and would never, never even tell me what the target was. If the target was to get all A's, I could do that. But that was never mentioned. And so anything that he disagreed with, there would be long periods of silence. And by that, I mean months, months of silence. So what this did was over time, I kind of began to really notice, God, my dad hasn't really spoken to me in a long time. So I would get stomach aches anytime that he would call or want to visit. And I just really learned to dread it going into probably late high school, early college, just really dreading it, but feeling a sense of duty and also still thinking that there's something I could do to make him love me, to make him love me the way that I would feel loved. I think if you were to ask him, do you love your daughter? He would say, yeah, but it doesn't feel loving. And I think that's, that's the thing I want myself to notice. And what I want our listeners to notice is to how we feel with other people is, is important. And we need to pay attention to that. So I have a couple of examples, if, if that's where you want to go. Yes, I had myself muted. I did not want to interrupt you. That's a lot, Lisa. It is. I just worry that they seem so petty, but to me, it just, oh, it just is just oh. like, I know this is just the chisel that like shapes the little Lisa sculpture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hammering away. Yeah. yeah. And it's not petty at all because you know, I know this phrase is used a lot. It's your reality. It is reality for you. And it is what you experienced and it is not petty at all. Everything is relative to the person and what could be a slight to one person is nothing. Uh, something may bother me. And my husband is like, well, that does, what is the big deal about that? So, you know, I think that, um, I just, I don't want you to feel like you should discount yourself. I think there are so many people that have gone through similar things like that and hearing about, you know, how you were wounded as a small child and the continuous wounding mm -hmm. is, is really important to acknowledge for yourself. And, and again, it makes it more relatable for other people that are either starting this journey or continuing this journey or have already gone through the journey and want to hear, hear about it so that they can continue to feel good about themselves or continue to help other people in their lives. Mm -hmm. So long-winded answer to, Absolutely. I, you know, really, I don't think that this is petty for what it's worth. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I do have a, a few examples just to kind of illustrate uh, how, you know, people's treatment of us really does shape not only who we are, but then what we look for in future relationships. This just kind of came to me just now too, that it's very interesting that growing up, I would visit with my dad, my biological father, every other weekend. So when I was living at home with my mom and stepdad, I was living in this vortex of toxicity, right? With my stepdad and my mother's inaction against him. 
And we'll, we can maybe get into that later, but, and then, so if I wasn't in that, then I was with my dad who, who, you know, treated me equally, just terribly in a, in a different way, but just, just not loving. So going from one unloving eggshelly environment into another, it was just no way that I could have turned out any differently. I don't think in terms of making me even more of an empath and more of just a person with such weak boundaries and um, not anymore. So, so a few memories that really stand out to me. Uh, one was in late call when I was in college toward graduation, we had not seen each other for several months. Um, he was in one of his periods of silent treatment because I had expressed interest in, in maybe moving into an apartment versus the dorm. And uh, he didn't agree with that. And so rather than have a grown-up conversation between a 20-year-old daughter and a father, he said, why would you want to do that? Which was his famous question. And then hung up on me and didn't speak to me for several months until he called and said, there's this great place in, in the hill country. We, sh we should go. When can you go? And so I set a date and again, dr kind of dreading it because of just dreading it. So it had been several months since we'd talked or seen each other and we're in the car and it was complete silence, just complete silence, not, Hey, what have you been up to or anything? And I would ask him some questions, you know, how did the meeting go with such and such client that I remembered from months back? And he would answer with one or two words followed by silence. Oh, so I just reached the point of fury. We had been in the car a couple of hours at that point, and it was just pulling teeth. And I just couldn't imagine what I had done so wrong for him to be so mad at me. I just, and that's, maybe that's something that, you know, we can explore in another podcast, but I think over long periods of time, when we are around people who are dismissive or uninterested, abusive, we start to think, what have I done? What's wrong with me? And I still do that to some degree, but I've learned that it's not always me. I haven't done anything wrong. This is a very wounded, very emotionally crippled man who is my father. And I spent almost 40 years of my life trying to gain his approval. And to other people, I'm probably worthy of an Oscar for whatever stories he tells them. But that's not the way he treats me. And so um, I just kind of want to throw that in there that I did always wonder what, what more could I do? What have I done wrong? Um, but it wasn't anything I'd done. So in the car, I began to cry. and just heave and sob. And I remember telling him, you are going to die someday. And I won't have anything to put in your obituary, except for your birthday and the day you died. I don't know anything about you. And he was silent. And I went on, I said, what's your favorite color? And he couldn't answer. And so what was your childhood like? Tell me about your friends, your hobbies. What, what did you like to do? You know, I knew a little bit like where he worked and he was in the army, but really just so few details. And I'll just never forget. I was just 
sobbing, you know, the ugly cry. He did make eye contact with me at that point. And he gave the cruelest smirk and just turned back and looked at the road and just kept on driving. And he said nothing, didn't reach out, squeeze my hand, didn't nothing. And so we drove another two hours to this place. So four hours total in the car. And once we got there, he just acted, he never brought it up. And so that was one memory that really stands out to me is just really, really sad, sad for me, sad for, for that Lisa, who just wanted so badly to know him. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this beautiful song by Reba McIntyre. I think it's called the greatest man I never knew. And that just perfectly encapsulates how I feel about my dad that I, you know, I'm sure he's a, a great man in the community, very philanthropic, but I don't know him apart from the way he makes me feel. So that's very unfortunate. Um, so kind of moving forward later, a few years, I'm still, you know, talking to him on the phone occasionally, seeing each other occasionally, still dreading it, uh, still at the end of every visit, just being exhausted, just being exhausted. And so I, I moved on to a new tactic, you know, that puppy jumping up and jumped a little higher. And I thought maybe I can find him the perfect gift. And anytime I would give him a gift of any kind, he would unwrap it, look at it, set it aside, and then go do something. Never a thank you never a, wow, this is cool or nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And so there was a, a store that opened in our city that was kind of one of a kind. Other little artsy cities around us had them, but we finally got one and he started going. And so every time he would come to our city to visit, he would make a stop at this store and spend a small fortune. Uh, there and a lot of time, a couple hours and just loved it. So I thought I am, that's the perfect gift. I'm going to get him a gift card to this place. And I did, I got him a $50 gift card. And at the time that was a lot of money for me. So I got him the gift card. Uh, my kids were little, so there was kind of a mess, you know, to clean up and we cleaned up. He put all the gift wrap and ribbons and what have you in a trash bag. And a little while later, I'm making piles of everyone's gifts because, right, you have to organize them so that they can be put away and taken to their rooms and everything. So I'm making a little pile of his things and I noticed the gift card is not there. So I said, Hey, dad, is that gift card in your wallet? Because it's, it's not here. And he looks in his wallet and he says, no, not here but nothing else, just that. I said, well, do you think it may have accidentally gone in the trash? I mean, yeah, probably was his answer, but still no urgency, no sense of urgency. Oh my God, that $50 gift card. I need to go look at that. Nothing. So long story short, I ended up going back through our bags of trash and I found it. And I said, here it is. I found it. And I was so relieved, you know, $50. And he picked it up, he tossed it to the counter and just said, hmm, just that sound, not even a thank you. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. How, you know, whatever, 
just that. And again, you know, I feel like telling this, it's kind of just such a dumb thing, but it just really is just the perfect representation of how disengaged and dismissive and how unimportant I felt in that moment. And, you know, to me, $50 was a lot of money and I wasn't even worth that to go look for that gift card. So yeah, that was um, a thing. And then another example is that he took my kids and I to uh, Disney World and, you know, it's supposed to be the happiest place on earth. And it was just absolutely miserable. A little interesting thing I was thinking the other day was, you know, now that my kids are kind of grown, they're grown, I guess, I guess you would call that grown. I was thinking the other day, I, I wonder if they would want to go back because I kind of want to go back and, and rewire or repave that little neural pathway that I have about Disney World because people go and talk about it and I just want to throw up thinking about Disney World so I think I want to go back and and pave a new memory but anyway so we went during the summer and um, it was actually the summer that Michael Jackson died and so I, I can't remember but we could look up the date, but it, it doesn't really matter. But Orlando in the summer is hot and humid. And because he doesn't want to get skin cancer, he wears long sleeves and pants wherever he goes. And so he wore that long sleeves and pants to Disney. But he complained the whole time about the heat. He complained if the lines were too long for a ride. He If the line was too short, he would complain about that and say, well, it must not be a very good ride if, if nobody's in line. Every morning... He would wake up in a terrible mood and just angry, not really throwing things around, but not really placing the remote, you know, in the hotel room. He wouldn't just place it on the nightstand. He just kind of fling it. Just little subtle aggressions constantly. So I was always on eggshells that whole trip. And I, I'm, I'm sure my kids, you know, picked up on that. But here we are, you know, he is paying for this trip and it's, it's not cheap to go to Disney. I'm wanting so badly for my kids and I just to have a wonderful time and make all these memories. And um, they were at a perfect age to really appreciate and enjoy it and not really get too tired in that, you know, that hangry stage where they throw a fit or hungry. And it was just a perfect time to take them. And I just, for me, that was just a miserable, a miserable trip. And what that did was just cause me to distance myself from him even more. And in fact, I did write him a letter after that trip and just let him know from my perspective, how miserable it was that yes, I was appreciative of the airplane tickets and the Disney tickets and the hotel and all the costs that, that you know, that he took care of, but it was miserable. And I just let him know in that letter that, that we would not be traveling with him ever again. And that was the first time that I really set a boundary for me. And I think that's important. You know, we set boundaries. There's a lot of talk about boundaries, but we don't set them for other people. We set them for me, for ourselves. And that was a huge moment for me of 
I will not tolerate this anymore. I do not deserve this. My kids certainly don't deserve this. And that's when I began to think, look what I'm exposing them to. Look what I'm conditioning them to accept. I'm conditioning them by my silence to accept this misbehavior that they don't deserve. And that was a huge uh, moment for me. So that was the Disney trip. Just a couple more short things was, again, it's just years and years of me tap dancing around, trying to take care of him, trying to be perfect, trying all sorts of things, racking my brain just to get him to show me that he loved me in a way that felt like love to me. I did want to say that I got my first hug from him on my 30th birthday, and it was my first and last hug from him. 30 years old, standing in a parking lot of a restaurant where we had met for lunch, I got my first hug from him. The kind of hugs that he gives aren't really hugs. Uh, It's always kind of a moving in sideways. He'll throw an arm around your shoulder, pat you two or three times, and then step away real quick. That's, That's his version of hugging. But this time on my 30th birthday, I got a full on front hug. And I think that's really a good metaphor for our relationship, which was come here, go away. Always keeping me at arm's length, never allowing me into his space, um, never allowing me to know him. And kind of sadly, you know, that's the kind of man that I have previously been attracted to as well. So the last thing is um, the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back as far as our relationship goes is... Um, He told my mother that if I ever remarried, that he would disown me. So after hearing that, I immediately called him and asked him if we could go to lunch. And he was excited because, you know, as I've said, I've kind of been creating distance, dreading anytime I would see him. So I never did the inviting ever because it was easier to not see him. But this time I did invite him and uh, my kids were with me and we sat down at lunch and our food arrived and the waiter walked away. And before I even took a bite, I just said, mom said, you told her if I get remarried that you'll disown me. Is that true? And he just looked at me and I think he said, eat your food before it gets cold. And I kept pressing the issue and um, he was silent. And you were dating somebody that you were very interested in getting married to and wanted his approval. Oh, yes. Yes. I was dating someone that um, just really checked all the boxes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had introduced him to my dad. And I think that was the only interaction with another human being that I observed with my dad that was so genuine and he and the man I was dating just talked to each other and connected with business politics religion all of you know the big three Mm -hmm. they connected they uh, they got along I mean it was just instant instant getting along. It's like watching people that had been friends for years, just sit down and talk to each other. So he had already met. Yes. Gentlemen. Yes. And then made the statement to your mom. Yes. They, they had already met. And then he made the statement. He'd never 
after he met this gentleman, my dad never said, oh, girl, I don't know about him. Or he's a great guy. He never, never said, you know, I, I called him after I introduced him, I introduced the two of them. I called just to see what his take was. And dad, what'd you think? He, you know, what did you think? I don't remember what he said, but it was just very, very neutral. Not he was great. Not he's terrible run. Neither, you know, just, nah, he was all right. Again, not the answer I was looking for because I was really falling in love with this guy and um, thinking about marriage. And so not the answer I was hoping for, but also he didn't elaborate. Uh, during that lunch, when I confronted him about his statement, one about disowning me against, you know, silence, I started to cry and sob and my kids are there and I'm trying to hold myself together, but I can't because I, sh I should go back in time with when I told my dad I was that my first husband and I were getting a divorce. His one and only response was, well, I could have told you that was going to happen. And I said, what? Really? What do you mean? What, what are you talking about? Well, I, I could have told you that was going to happen. That's all he would repeat. It was nothing like, well, let me tell you, I did a background check and, you know, he had nothing to back it up with other than that statement, which did a huge number on me because that statement, I could have told you that was going to happen, means a lot of things. It means he knew something I didn't know. It means he knew something I didn't know and he chose not to tell me. Um, it means that he saw his daughter headed for disaster and didn't say anything to her. I mean, it's just all, all the things that you need to have in a father, that, that protective nature that I think a healthy father would die for his daughter, like legitimately die. As in like Jesus Christ died for us, you know, it's that kind of love. And he, boy, when he said that, talk about, he could have very well just said, I don't love you enough to be honest with you, um, because that's what that statement meant. So he, even though I cried and begged and kind of made a little scene <laughs> at the restaurant, he just refused to talk. He said, the only thing he did ask was, can we can we talk about this later? And I said, no, this is it. This, this is it. And I need for you to t tell me now. And so that was the last time I spoke to him. And that was um, 10 years ago. Again, another boundary that I set for me, for me, because I'm not going to beg another human being for anything ever. And for a person who by God's design, should love unconditionally. And even if they're not perfect at it, we're not, none of us are perfect at it, but we have an obligation to, when we love someone to be honest and vulnerable, and he's not capable of doing that. And, you know, long story short, I have a stomach ache thinking about talking to him or being around him. And he doesn't love me in the way that I feel love. And so that relationship, you know, is, is severed. And, um, I am at peace with that because it's, 
it's what is good for me, what's good and best for me. I didn't know some of that. (laughs) Was it cathartic for you going through some of that? Very much, Um, much, much like the time, you know, that, that I know we'll talk about at some point uh, when I came to your house and told you a bunch of stuff. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of, yeah, once it's out in the universe, you know, it's real and it's, I'm not holding that. Mm -hmm as, as my own burden anymore. You, you made a, uh, before I forget it, you made such an insightful statement just now, the little fireworks were going off in my brain. When you said about your dad, he doesn't love me the way I feel love. It took you, you know, several decades to get to that point, that realization, and not just about him. It is the type of people that fall prey to, you know, these toxic people put it aside that I am allowed to feel love the way I want to feel loved. We put that aside and, you know, put our, that is a huge need to feel loved by any social creature, but mostly humans. And you can kick a dog a bunch of times, which I don't condone, and they just keep coming back. And we essentially turn into that when we show them that that's okay to treat us that way. But you have prevailed out of that relationship, knowing that, you know, this man is not going to love you and there is nothing you can do that you can sit there and, and sob and cry for hours in a car with him. And it doesn't have an effect whatsoever on him is huge mm-hmm. because what human being with a conscience can let that happen? It's Absolutely. heartbreaking, Lisa, that you sat there like that, not just in that situation, but in all of the situations where you were like the puppy dog, so heartily trying to get love and affection from him and ultimately realize it's impossible. And it's like a death and you have to grieve it. And I know that you have been doing that. And that's really, unfortunately, how we have to look at that with these people. They can't be in our life. Absolutely. If we want mental health. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I take it just one step further. It's difficult to act on, but isn't it really as simple as this? You have an interaction with someone, you walk away to process it, and you just ask yourself, did I feel loved? That just occurred to me like, wow, if I think about any of the people like coworkers or just even an interaction at the grocery store, you Mm -hmm. know, with someone who's really neat, you're just standing in line, you're both waiting and your ice cream's melting. It's 102 or whatever. And you just have this really great interaction. You walk away. I bet we could drill down long enough or deep Mm -hmm. enough to realize I felt loved in that moment. Mm -hmm. Not Mm -hmm. loved like, I think they want to kiss me, but loved (laughs) like, oh my gosh, she was really interested in what I had in my cart. (laughs) Yes. Or both of our sons are in the army. That is so cool. But just those connections, but it really is that simple and that complicated all Mm -hmm. at the same time of, Mm -hmm. did I feel loved? And I think that's probably that I know that's why we have been best friends for so long it's, we leave each other's company, I am, you know, at Bunko or at lunch or on our favorite getaway, 
or even hanging up the phone, I just always hang up, not consciously thinking of it, but I feel so loved Mm -hmm. and heard, you know, and validated. Yeah. And And so affirmed, Mm -hmm. so affirmed and, and also challenged, right? Because it's not healthy to always be hearing that we're right and perfect. I I don't want to do that. You know, I want to be challenged too, but yeah, just, he doesn't love me the way that I feel loved. Yeah, that was, that was a really great, that was a great insight. Yeah. You know, gosh, there's just so much here, you know, interesting. The the part where you talked about your stepdad slinging that cup of coffee across the counter at your Mm -hmm. mom. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she definitely, I think arguably was in a codependent role with him for sure. And, you know, how, you know, if you're a codependent versus a narcissist, maybe that's taking a back seat is the amount of remorse and empathy mm-hmm. that is or isn't present. Right. Right. Well, I guess thinking, you know, big picture of, all right, so what is, what does all this mean? You know, kind of going through my experiences growing up with these two men who mm-hmm. both had such an impact on me, you know, what does that, what does that mean for, for later? How did that shape me? Well, for the most part, I've kind of always chosen dismissive, uninterested, cruel, self-centered, <laughs> self-centered. Yes. Mm-hmm. My first ex-husband was not cruel or any of those things. So I'm not going to lump him into that. But certainly the last person I was involved with um, was and ended up being just the perfect blend of both my dad and stepdad. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very. And so I have always been drawn to the guys that are hard to get Mm -hmm. because it, I have to prove my worth Mm -hmm. and if I'm with a guy who sees my worth, then that's not interesting to me because I, I haven't always believed that I'm worthy. You know, I, I did date a couple of guys who were genuinely nice people, but I felt like they were fake and they probably, they weren't like looking back, they weren't, they genuinely liked me for me, but I didn't believe them because mm-hmm. I hadn't proved anything to them yet. And where were you in your value of yourself at the time? Oh, just. If you don't value my, yourself, are you going to believe someone that's valuing you? Right. Exactly. And my validation was 100% external. Mm-hmm. It was based on what other people said about me mm-hmm. or based on how other people treated me. So if they were silent or cruel, I just worked harder, just did more. So that's a huge point that you just brought up. And that is, you know, if, when we value ourselves, we don't tolerate this behavior. Mm-hmm. And when we're, when we're hardwired to not value ourselves, I mean, you received that message over and over again from your parents, all three of them. Mm-hmm. And when a mother doesn't protect her daughter from either father, that shows your value mm-hmm. to your mother mm-hmm. and then ultimately yourself. Yep. Yeah. So with my um, ex-husband, you know, I 
was hardwired, as you said, conditioned. And so, boy, he, you know, struck gold with me um, because I was satisfied with any little scrap. Mm-hmm. And boy, I could just ride that endorphin high for weeks mm-hmm. with any little scrap. To clarify, mm-hmm. we were talking about your second ex-husband. Yes. We, which we can't get to live out <laughs> because what else are you going to do? And yeah. yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's maybe the last ex-husband. Who knows? Who knows? But, oh, you know. no, I, I know <laughs> the last ex-husband resigned to be a cat lady. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, just to, just to clarify. Because, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's important. Yeah. yeah. Very important clarification there yeah. and, and help. We need, to, we need to find a nickname for him. So we'll, we'll be working on that for the, before the next, before we go into him, we'll, okay. we'll have a nickname because don't want to confuse number one with number two. We could call <laughs> number two. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think just to kind of beat the horse again, you know, just the men I've traditionally been attracted to are narcissistic, controlling, charming. Mm-hmm. Um, but my upbringing really taught me that I have to prove myself worthy in their eyes, not mm-hmm. in mine, mm-hmm. in their eyes. But what I realize now being out of that second marriage is that I was feeling perpetually unworthy because the target is always moving. Oh, wow. It's, you know, and anytime I would by chance strike the target, you know, it, it, oh, it just wasn't, it wasn't lasting or something would happen later to undo that good mm-hmm. feeling. So well, it's like at the shooting range when once you use a target up, they tear the piece of paper off and put another oh, one and yep. it's just a brand new piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I think, I think that's a really great first episode for our podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm excited to dig deeper into this. And I think it's beneficial for you processing it. And I hope it helps other people as well, because you are the most genuine person, the most authentic person I've ever known. And hopefully comes across to other people as well. I'm certain it does. If we can help one person, it will make it worth it. And I'm excited to see where we go. Yeah, me too. Well, thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Until next time. Yes. Until next time. Here's Here's your your red flag. flag. I flew up to the mirror. Here's Your Red Flag was written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa, and edited by Tony. Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Thanks, y'all. You are-